Hi, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening. Welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Serenia Nantapunzla, and I have Dr. Gabrielle um, Boaram with me today. Um, so thank you so much for coming to my podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Um, to get us started, could you elaborate more on who you are, where you're from, and what you're doing? Yes, I'm an assistant research professor at the Desert Research Institute in Nevada, um, which basically means I get to do all sorts of interesting environmental related research in sort of an academic setting, um, but the Desert Research Institute doesn't grant degrees. It's not a university, but we do have students who work with us. Um, we do all different types of environmental research. And I'm an eco-hydrologist, so I study how vegetation and water interact and what that means for people's water resources. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my research focuses on wildfires and how those change the land cover and how that then in turn impacts hydrology and the water balance. Gotcha. So what does it mean to be an eco-hydrologist? Basically, it means we're so it's a subset of hydrology, which is basically just the study of how water moves around. Mm -hmm. um, so they, where water that falls as rain or snow then goes once it gets on the land. Um, and then an eco-hydrologist focuses on how plants mediate that water balance. So plants can, you know, intercept water that's falling, keep it from getting reaching the ground in the first place. Plants pull water out of the ground through their roots. Um, release it as vapor, their stomata. Plants also um, can provide shade, which changes how much evaporation happens off of the ground. Um, those are some of the basic things. Gotcha. So by just like the plants being there, it's taking water out of the ground, out of um, other sources of water, sinks of water, and then like storing it in itself. And that can affect like the water cycle. So where is the water going? Yeah, and plants can also help redistribute water. Like some trees um, might, you know, be pulling water out of the deeper soil from their roots. And then at night when they're not um, transpiring water out of their leaves, some of that water might then get released through the shallower roots back into the shallow soil. And uh, that's called hydraulic redistribution. So that can be a way that plants affect how much water is available at different depths in the ground for the other plants around them um, without necessarily removing water. Um, but generally having more plants on the ground means that there's less water going to stream flow um, or going down into storage. Right, um, which also- But there can be, oh, sorry. No, 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 you're good, continue. Um, <clears throat> but I usually study mountain watersheds where you have really complicated interactions between trees and snowpack, where in some cases, if you have more trees, it can mean that you have more snow on the ground. Sometimes it means you have less snow on the ground. Um, and snow is really important, especially for Western water management. And so studying some of those complexities is something that I'm especially interested in. Yeah, they're they're very complex. Um, I think <laughs> I think in California, I was looking at um one of the watersheds, <clears throat> and I remember like most of the the headwater, it, it like it all comes from just melted snowpack, right? So like mm -hmm. um you have yeah mostly. Pardon me. 
mostly some water just falls straight as rain but <laughs> yeah so so that specific one i was looking at was um uh, melting snow um uh, that was like the the um reason for all that water uh so like mm -hmm. i guess what what do so how do the trees actually affect how much snow is on the ground well there's a few different mechanisms um basically the first one can just be trees can intercept snow that's falling and you know, often you see if there's been a fresh snowfall that trees are all covered in white snow and it's very beautiful mm -hmm. um and some of that snow will eventually still then slip off or melt and fall down to the ground but some of it um will just melt and then evaporate while it's still up in the canopy or some of it will actually sublimate which means it goes straight from being solid ice to um, gaseous water vapor and can um, just go straight back up into the air. And so the more water get or the more snow gets caught in the branches of trees, um, the less is going to ultimately make it down onto the ground. And then <clears throat> once the snow is on the ground in the snowpack, trees can provide shade, which might keep the snow on the ground longer, but the trees might also make the area a little bit warmer um, by having sort of an insulating effect or you also have sort of radiation that comes off of the trees when sun help hits them um, and that uh, emitted radiation from the trees or reflected radiation can then melt the snow um, if you've been skiing or snowboarding or just out in forests in the winter time you probably have often noticed snow wells um, around the trees, especially if you're skiing, you want to make sure that you don't fall in mm -hmm. to basically these big pits that form around all the trees. And that's because the dark surface of the tree bark itself basically helps to melt the snow that's right around the tree. Mm -hmm. And so that melted snow um, then goes down to the ground or runs off to become stream flow, and it's no longer stored in the snowpack. And for um, especially in the Western US, it's really helpful to people and to the ecosystem for water to be stored in the snowpack for as long as possible because most of the precipitation falls in the wintertime, mm -hmm. but we need the most water in the summertime when there's not a lot of rain. Right. And so basically if the water's stored in the snowpack, that's like a natural reservoir and then when it melts later in the spring and summer, then it's more useful to the plants, the ecosystems, the people um, that all need more water in the summertime when it's hot and when things are growing. Mm -hmm. So like, how is that affected by climate change and global warming? Yeah, so that's a huge thing that people are worried about right now um, because under climate change, the Basically, all the models seem to be really clear that it's going to keep getting warmer into the future. And the models of future climates don't really agree on what precipitation is going to do. Some models say there's going to be more precipitation. Some say there's going to be less. Some say it's just going to be more extreme. So you're going to have more droughts, but also more really, really wet years. Um, but uh, no matter what happens, if it's warmer, less of that precipitation is going to fall as snow. And what does fall as snow is going to melt sooner and it's going to melt faster. 
And that's going to change when and how water is coming down the streams. It could mean more floods. Um, it could mean that just all of the water comes early in the year and then our you know, human-made reservoirs downstream aren't able to hold that much water. And so some of it then has to get released and can't be used later. Um, you might get more rain on snow events, which <clears throat> basically you have uh, rain that falls in the winter time or the early spring when there's still a lot of snow on the ground and it melts that snow really fast. Mm -hmm. And that can cause huge flooding. Um, like several years ago when there was the crisis at the Orville Dam mm -hmm. in California that was caused by a rain on snow event. Um, and basically there was just too much water coming all at once and it was really unexpected. And um, the dam wasn't able to handle it, especially the overflow on the dam that hadn't been tested before. But anyway, um, yeah, so basically climate change is going to mean less water stored as snow, pretty much definitely. Mm -hmm. um, we're pretty certain about that. And that's going to mean that there's less water stored in that natural reservoir that is the snowpack. And it can come too fast or it can come too early or both. <clears throat> right, like it can have big flooding events like like you gave the, the Orville Dam. And then, but it can also just not have, and it won't help us, um, with, like it won't have enough water for us, uh, like in the summer months and such. Yeah, exactly. Which is when you need to be irrigating crops and mm -hmm. um, when, you know, people are, yeah, needing more water to cool off in various activities. Yes, exactly. I was going to think, I was thinking like more thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> um, <That too. laughs> Um, although we should always be thirsty because water is important. Um, so I think I think it's important to also note like how are people affected by this? Um, like we just discussed, there's flooding and that can affect homes um, around these areas. Um, but in other in other ways, like people are in that like mountain stream area, but also people who don't really who don't live in the mountains. So how does that affect those other people? Yeah, definitely. A lot of people. Um, don't realize where their water comes from, but odds are pretty good almost wherever you are in the world that at least some of the water that you drink or that waters the crops that you eat came from the mountains originally. Even people who live like in Los Angeles next to the beach, um, most of their water is coming either from the Sierra Nevadas or from mountains up in Colorado and other headwaters of the Colorado River. Um, and that water traveled many, many miles to get there. And, um, but it all started as snow up in the mountains. And what happens to that snow when it falls, after it falls in the mountains, um, depends on the climate, also depends on the vegetation and what's happening in those watersheds and how those watersheds are being managed. And by which I mean, um, you know, are the, is there logging going on? Are there prescribed burns going on? Um, are things being done to reduce the risk of really extreme fires? Um, is the vegetation getting overly dense because too many fires are being put out in places where fires are natural and part of the ecosystem? 
Um, basically, all these decisions that people make about what happens in the forested mountain areas affects people downstream who might not even realize that that's where their water started from. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, <clears throat> yeah, you have um, uh, more like snow melt, so that kind of um, unco like uncovers more trees, and that might cause more fires. Um, I think that that. So that yeah, well, so basically, if the snow is melting earlier, mm -hmm. then you have, then later in the summer, you probably have less moisture in the soil because basically everything started drying out earlier in the year. Right. And if there's less moisture in the soil, then the plants don't have as much water and they'll be dry, drier and they will ignite more easily. Right. Um, that kind of summarizes the effects of climate change and how climate change has been exacerbating like mm -hmm. fires. Um, you just have literally drier stuff. So it's easier to burn. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so like, um, something I wanted to, I was curious about was like, how do different kinds of vegetation um, maybe cause, uh, like cause, uh, are maybe like affected by um, the melting snow melt, uh, the melting snow um, differently? Or if they are different types of vegetation may causing, may, may be causing like snow melt uh, in different ways. Yeah, then, well, so basically larger, trees will affect the snowpack more because they provide more shade and they also stick up out of the snow for a longer period of the winter. Um, and they have, you know, larger area to catch snow in their branches. Um, and the larger trees also can generally handle changes in the water availability more because they have deeper roots that can maybe access water that's um, been stored for longer, mm -hmm. um, whereas the more shallow-rooted vegetation might depend more on some of that shallow soil moisture. And if all the snow is melting really early, and if it melts before it gets warm enough for those small plants with shallow roots to start growing, then there's not going to be a lot of water available when those small plants need it. Right. Um, and also like, how does um, mountain elevation, so like where you are on the mountain affect drought severity? I think it, I think like in my head, it just like, there's different, um, like it's warmer, closer to the surface, I think. And then as you go up and above like the snow line, you get, you get like colder. Snow. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. As you go higher in elevation, it gets colder. Um, and so a lot of things that people are seeing with climate change is that a lot of plant and animal species are slowly shifting their distributions. Um, so sort of moving further uphill as it gets warmer because they're moving to where it's cool or they're moving to the temperatures that they want, um, which are higher and higher up the mountains as everything gets warmer. And so the highest elevations are going to be uh, least affected by climate, they'll still feel climate change, um, but it'll hopefully stay cold enough for there to be snow. Um, but once you get above a certain elevation, there's not a lot of soils because in the past there wasn't enough warmth up there for plants to grow. And so I didn't create soils, it's just bedrock. 
yeah. um, when you get up above the tree line. Um, and the tree line can slowly move up, but that's a very long, slow process. Mm -hmm. Right. And now kind of like moving a little bit towards um, wildfires. So we, we, like we talked about, like global warming has um, like increased the amount of wildfires. So what kind of, so, so let me give some background here. So something, mm -hmm. something I'm interested in is like this um, uh, earth systems like analysis, which is where you're connecting like different spheres of, of the earth. So your biosphere, hydrosphere, geosphere, um, and uh, mm -hmm. atmosphere, and then, and the anthroposphere. So the people, cause I mm -hmm. mean, they've had such like a big impact on the earth. Um, so what, what kind of like the climate uh, or like, sorry, earth systems, like um, systems do you need to be looking at when you're studying um, the intersection between wildfires and um, snow melt? Yeah, well, like you said, you really need to look at all of them. Um, there, I mean, the areas that I focus on are basically the biosphere and the hydrosphere. Um, but also the atmosphere is affecting the climate, is affecting the temperature. Um, affecting the weather patterns. And then um, you have the underlying geology is going to affect sort of how the water that melts from the snow partitions and how fast it runs off into the streams, how much is able to be stored for use by vegetation, um, that sort of thing. Also, you know, how steep something is or what your aspect is. So if you're on a northern slope or a southern slope, that really affects the snowpack and affects the plant-snow interactions. Mm -hmm. um, and the topography will affect wildfire behavior a lot as well. If you have um, steeper slopes, then fire can run up those slopes easier than if it's flat, for example. Oh. Um, and then also the local weather patterns and topography can influence fire behavior a lot um, and influence what type of vegetation is going to grow in the first place and what type is going to regrow after a fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I didn't think of that, like having, it's like, if you have steeper slopes, the fire will like spread easier. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is it just like, uh, it's easier to, for something to like move down or up like the steeper slopes? Yeah. So fires generally move uphill the easiest. And just, do you think of like, basically the, so I'm not a fire process person really, um, but I'm friends with a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the really basic oversimplified way to think of it is that basically flames go up. And so if as they go up, they're needing more fuels because there's a slope above them with more trees on it, mm -hmm. then those flames are going to be able to catch those fuels easier. Um, versus yeah. if you have a fire that starts at the top of a ridge, then um, it can move downhill basically by sparks going out and hitting mm -hmm. some more fuels and spreading down that way. Um, but the flames are basically going up into the air. And if all of the other vegetation around is below them, then it's not as easy for them to catch that vegetation on fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Like the mm -hmm. flames going up, yeah. Um, I guess I guess that's what science is about. Once you really think mm -hmm. about it, it just makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, can you like describe some of your research with um, wildfires and and uh, mount, uh, snow melt? 
uh, like the process of what I do or the types of like the types of uh, yeah, uh, so like the types um, like the big ideas that you're trying to answer, um, <laughs> and uh, like what kind of research is done. Like, is it more data focused or um, like a field or in a lab? Mm -hmm. maybe? <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the big things that I've been studying um, basically since my PhD is looking at fire adapted ecosystems so basically places that you know over the past millennia have adapted to have relatively frequent fires um and that's area and a lot of areas sort of in a certain elevation band in the southwestern us especially because these are places that have a mediterranean climate so they have really hot dry summers um, but there can also be lightning strikes, especially up in the mountains. And so during those hot, dry summers, um, you get a lot of natural fire ignitions. And then um, those fires burn through. And sometimes they can burn for months until the rains come back in October, November. Um, and there was also a lot of indigenous burning historically, too, I should say, though that was you know, a much smaller scale than, than these lightning fires. Um, but like you said, yeah, I didn't even mention the Anthropocene before um, when you were asking about the different spheres, but um, people have been affecting the landscape as long as people have been around. And in the systems that I study, um, there's been a lot of management by Native peoples from long before we had the Park Service or the Forest Service or anything like that, um, doing work both to prevent large catastrophic fires from happening, but also to encourage smaller fires that could clear areas out mm -hmm. in order to um, encourage the growth of certain things they wanted, also to reduce fuels so that future fires wouldn't be too big, um, clear areas that you know might be better for um, growing oak trees that have the acorns they want. Um, anyway, sorry, that's a tangent. But basically in studying areas that historically they, <clears throat> used to have fires pretty frequently, um, so it would burn more often, but each individual fire wouldn't be that big and wouldn't be that severe because there aren't, there's not that much fuel to burn because it had already burned maybe 10 years earlier on average, depending where you are. Um, and then starting in like late 1800s, early 1900s, a series of changes in who was on the land and what kind of decisions they were making, for example, not wanting all these forests to burn so that they could be cut down for timber instead, led to putting out a lot of these naturally ignited lightning fires in um, Western US forests. And so at first it worked really well, putting out all the fires, great, protecting your timber stands, protecting farms, protecting homes, et cetera. Um, but then, after several decades of this, people started realizing, oh, now it's getting harder and harder to put out these fires every time they happen, because when a fire does happen, it's meeting this huge fuel load. There's all these dead branches and pine needles and everything on the ground that haven't been cleared out for years and years and years because we haven't let any fires burn through. Mm -hmm. um, so the fires that do happen are bigger and more catastrophic. And then also places that don't have fire, the forests are really, really dense. There's um, a lot more trees than there would have been if you'd gone to that forest 100 or 200 years earlier. 
Um, and that seems like a good thing. Trees are great. They make oxygen. They make shade. They're beautiful. But trees also use water, like we talked about before. So if your forests have more trees in them than the area is adapted to, then each of those individual trees doesn't have access to as much water. And so then when you have a drought come through, all those trees are competing for water and there might not be enough to go around. And so those trees might then die off like during um, the drought years in like 2014, 2015 in California, we had huge areas of forest that were dying um, because the trees were water stressed and they were either dying directly from that or there were beetles, um, like pine beetle that were attacking the trees and the trees basically couldn't defend themselves because they were already too water stressed. They like, didn't have enough resources um, to fight off these pests. Um, and so, it, um, yeah, so one thing that I'm looking at is are the, how are these basically unnaturally dense forests? And I say unnaturally, even though they may have grown themselves naturally without anyone planting trees or anything, um, although in some places people did plant trees following, say, a logging or um, something like that. Um, but I say unnaturally dense because people stopped the fires that would have naturally thinned out these forests. And are these really dense forests um, exacerbating the effects of drought? Are they reducing the amount of water that's going downstream? Are they changing how that snowpack behaves? And so my main study site is in the Lillooet Creek Basin in Yosemite, which in the early 1970s, the managers at Yosemite National Park decided, hey, here's this area that's pretty remote. It's surrounded by granite. So it'll you know, stop most of the fires that start there. Let's see what happens if we just let these naturally ignited wildfires burn like they used to, will that kind of restore the ecosystem? And so that's been happening for about 50 years now. And so we have this great sort of natural experiment to see um, place that we've allowed fire to behave naturally like it used to compared to the areas around it where most fires have been suppressed. And we're finding some really interesting things about how on average, it seems like you store more water as snow. Um, also, there's more water in the soils, which as we said before, then that higher moisture content can um, reduce fire spread. Um, you also have less fire spread because since fires are happening more often in this area, they're reducing that fuel load. Um, there's a fire burning there right now, the red fire. And, um, that's actually gotten pretty big uh, because there was a heat wave that came through mm -hmm. um, just as it was growing, but it's burning through some areas um, that had burned before in the previous 20 years or so. Um, so I'm really curious to see um, after the fact, look at how that fire has behaved. And we've got some measurements um, in the area that's burning right now before the fire, um, just sort of by luck. And so we'll be able to go and redo those measurements after and see um, how this newest fire on top of the previous fires is affecting the snowpack, soil moisture, fuel moistures. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really excited to be able to learn more from that. Yeah, absolutely. When you have something playing out real time right in front of you, that's- Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
fascinating to see. Yeah. So you asked what kind of things are doing. So there's um, a lot of field work in what I do, hiking out, um, taking measurements. Uh, there's also a lot of computer modeling. Nowadays, there's more and more um, satellite data that's available. Uh, that's really helpful, especially for tracking the impacts of something large scale like a wildfire. Yeah, I've played around a bit with Sentinel-2, I think, Sentinel-2 and 5, mm -hmm. and I've just mm -hmm. like seen um, a volcano lava flow and also like wildfires. There was some mm -hmm. like, starter packs there to look through, nice. which was very cool. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, that's another great thing is there is more and more open source software coming out to let people use these massive amounts of data. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, like what all you can do with it. I can literally like immerse myself in another, in a whole nother um, place, and really learn about um, like what's what's happening and how is it changing over time. So originally, I'm from Pennsylvania. I don't think I've ever mm -hmm. seen a wildfire in my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like seeing that from above is just something really cool. Yeah, definitely. It yeah. really helps you get an idea of the scale. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, another thing is like we're looking. You're, you're um, looking at. Um, uh, I, I also actually before that, um, I have some friends living in in that area. They're they're sending me pictures of how you how um, the cloud cover is so so like it's so um, thick. Like the clouds are so thick, and they aren't mm -hmm. even able to like see the sun, which is um, pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten pretty lucky um, with smoke this year. But yeah, the last few summers, there were definitely a lot of days where just the sun was this weird red disc in the sky. Yeah. Um, and right now, um, I have a lot of colleagues in Reno, and they're saying it's the worst that they've ever seen right now because um, of the fire burning near Lake Tahoe. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, and uh, so fires in this area, like I said, are a natural part of the ecosystem, but of these huge fires that are burning and causing these massive amounts of smoke are sort of a legacy of this fire suppression that let the fuels build up to this point where the fires can grow so big and so fast. Um, and then that's also combined with climate change that's making things hotter and drier, more flammable. Yeah, it's, it's a little scary to see that something we thought would work well, like the fire suppression made things mm -hmm. a whole hours later on. Yeah, there's basically environmental science is full of examples like that where people tried something with the best of intentions and then later realized that the natural world's a lot more complicated than they thought it was. Um, and it's not just for the um, these consequences of these really big fires happening. There's also all these different ecosystem processes that people didn't realize at first um, how important fire was to it. Like one of my favorites is in in Yosemite, there's the giant sequoia groves that are you know, a big part of the reason that Yosemite became a national park in the first place. Um, and, you know, when the area was first protected as a park, they all said, okay, we need to keep all the fire out of these sequoia groves. We need to protect these trees. They're really unique. Too many of them have been cut down. We need to keep them safe. Um, and then after a while, someone started asking, hey, why are there no baby sequoias? Where are all the seedlings? And they realized that sequoias basically need bare soil under them for the seedlings to be able to sprout. 
they they need fire to be able to reproduce. Right. And so now the Park Service actually sets fires on purpose in the sequoia groves, you know, under very carefully managed conditions um, to clear the ground and make it so that the seedlings can grow so that, you know, we can have more sequoias in the future. Yeah, that's that's like a great example of how of like a scientific experiment, like just like starting with mm -hmm. your question and then um, getting to a conclusion using you using like the usual steps we use. Um, so mm -hmm. that's that's a really fascinating example. And also, I do not know that sequoia trees needed like bare soil for them to grow. And that's yeah. great. Good. We found that. Um, yeah. yeah. And there are a lot of other trees that also um, either need fire to reproduce or um, they can grow a lot better following a fire. But sequoias are the most well-known example. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Like uh, they need fires. Bottom line, fire is important for ecosystems. Well, some ecosystems, but uh, mm -hmm. and if we suppress that, they, they fires might get worse and affect things that don't want to be affected by fire. Yeah. Um, so now we, so we have wildfires and are there like uh, inventions that can be utilized in trying to prevent wildfires from occurring? We talked about like fire suppression, but maybe mm -hmm. like after that, after there's a fire, like remediation in places that were like, um, there's homes or infrastructure there. Yeah, definitely. Well, satellite data is a huge one that we were talking about before um, this now there's um, all this imagery that can be used to like get a view of the whole fire footprint right away, you know, see what's been damaged, where um, different um, parts of the light spectrum can tell you different things about like how severe the fire was, mm -hmm. how much vegetation has been removed, how much the soil has been affected. So where you're likely to see floods, um, where it's important to maybe get out some remediation to you know, help prevent some flooding, prevent landslides, um, maybe do some revegetation, mm -hmm. um, places to um, make sure that people are safe. Um, there's also more and more use of drones. Um, you can send a drone out into a place that's recently burned or maybe even still burning, um, but that might be dangerous for a person to walk. Um, either because there's still fire or because there's all these, you know burned trees that could fall on you, that sort of thing. And the drones can, you know, take a look and get imagery and see where the damage is greatest and help give ideas of where remediation can happen. Um, I'm part of a new project that just got funded in Nevada where we're going to work on some different tests that can be done with drones. Um, hopefully we're going to try and figure out if we can get the drones to measure the soil water repellency, which that's one thing that can happen after a fire is basically the soil's kind of been baked and it's and water doesn't seep into it as well. The water just kind of runs off the surface. Uh -huh. And so that's where you can get a lot of flooding and erosion, especially. Um, plus you couple that with there's not vegetation and roots, you know, holding the soil in place anymore. Um, and so a common test that gets done on the ground after a fire is this water drop penetration test, which um, can be as simple as you just have a little dropper and you place some water on the soil and you see if it seeps in or you time how long that little water droplet sits on the soil 
before it seeps in. Um, and that can tell you um, whether you have this hydrophobic soil, um, which can happen with or without fire, but often happens right after a fire. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're going to see if we can get drones to basically fly out to places that are hard to access and drop little droplets of water on the soil and like take pictures and see if it's uh, infiltrating or not. And that'll um, be really helpful in mapping out where you have areas where you're likely to have a lot of water running off the surface, causing floods and causing erosion. Yeah, so basically after the wildfire, the soil becomes um, impermeable and then the water, well, almost impermeable and then yeah. it's harder for the water to go through. Yeah, and then drones, yeah. like you said, drones can go to places where people can't go and you can mm -hmm. understand them. The soil water repellency, which is which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, um, is it possible to predict uh, when and where a fire is going to occur based on using models or satellite data? Maybe um, you can definitely predict what places are more likely to burn mm -hmm. um, and where fire is likely to be more severe or dangerous. But um, when a when a fire actually occurs and its behavior once it starts depends so much on little details of the weather behavior and the local topography um, and on random things like lightning strikes or you know someone being careless with a cigarette or a campfire. Um, so you can't ever predict exactly when a fire is going to happen um, or what it's going to do, but we do have a lot of tools with um, models and satellite data and measurements on the ground and mm -hmm. um, all the um, weather stations that are out everywhere that can help predict, you know, what areas are at risk and where you need to be more careful. Um, like in California last summer, um, PG&E did a lot of um, preventative turning off of power because a lot of the really big fires that have happened in California the last few years are because um, we're started by electrical infrastructure during really hot, dry, windy days. Mm -hmm. And so um, basically last summer, I think last summer was the first time they did this, that basically the electrical company decided, all right, if it's really hot and dry and windy in a place, we're just going to turn off power. And they warned people ahead of time that this was going to happen so people could make plans so they would be safe if you know, there's people on ventilators or something like that where they need electricity to survive. Um, and that may have prevented some fires last year doing that. Um, but it's sort of a controversial thing because all these people are like, hey, my power was out for days and um, you know, it caused either an inconvenience or maybe made things dangerous, depending on what your situation is. And um, you can't know for sure that that prevented a fire because you can't know for sure that a fire was going to happen. But they just knew that fires were more likely um, because of their weather models. Right. Um, and so they used that decision to decide when turning off the power was worth it to try and reduce that risk. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like weather. You can't really predict what is exactly mm -hmm. going to happen, but we have some mm -hmm. kind of estimate. Yeah, so it's well, and it's so it's the unpredictability of weather coupled with just random things like lightning strikes and 
cigarette butts and yeah, you know, transformers malfunctioning and exploding. Um, yeah. that you really can't predict at all. Exactly. Um, and like when fires are put out, um, I, I, I remember we were talking about drones just now and like how, um, drones can help, um, fire. So, so one of the things I was looking into was that drones can help firefighters, like in the initial stages of that fire being put out. Um, like just, mm -hmm. I think, I think there was one invention I was looking at that just like sprayed water, um, at that area or, or whatever chemicals used, um, mm -hmm. just sprayed it at that area so that it could like reduce, um, the, like, the, the uh, severeness of the fire um, before the firefighters were able to come and and like do their <laughs> stuff. Um, so do you think like uh, there is an inefficiency in how fires are being put out um, like for fire suppression um, needs? Um, I mean, I think that the people who fight wildfires, you know, are actually pretty good at it. Yeah. And there's definitely new technology coming along all the time that can help. Um, but a lot of what I study actually is where people have been too good at fighting fires. <laughs> right. And maybe they kept fire out of places um, that in the long run, it might've been better to let it burn. But um, I mean, there are some inefficiencies just in terms of, you know, a lot of the, or, not inefficiencies, but some of the things that slow firefighting down is that a lot of the most severe fires happen in this steep terrain and places that are hard to get to. Um, and so then you know, they have to bring in a helicopter that's really expensive and it can't land every, anywhere, everywhere. Um, and also it might be hard to get water there. And I remember one time there was a small fire um, somewhere in Yosemite and I was on a hike and I watched this helicopter that flew over it and did a water drop. And the helicopter just looked so tiny compared to the fire area and that bucket of water. Like if you looked at it up close, it would seem like a huge amount of water, but seeing it from miles away where I was just against this big plume of smoke, it just looked like this tiny little splash. Um, and so like, actually, you know, we always think of water as being really important in fighting fires, but mostly because like if a house is on fire, you know, fire truck comes with a hose and that's primarily how they put the fire out. But when you have, you know, a wildfire that's over many, many acres, maybe thousands of acres, you see, you can use water in a few strategic places to kind of slow it down. Um, but you're not going to be able to dump water over the whole fire and put it out as if it was a house that was on fire. Um, and, you know, they can use chemicals that help a little more for doing larger areas, but a lot of fighting those large fires is mostly just about um, creating fire breaks and sometimes even doing backburns where they'll like start a fire in a certain location when the winds are right so they can sort of burn the fuels um, before the fire reaches that spot. Mm -hmm. And they do it you know, at night when conditions are cooler, when the winds are moving toward where the flames are coming from, um, so that the place that they want to burn burns and they don't just expand the fire further. Um, so there are a lot of tools that get used um, besides water when it comes to wildfire, but a lot of it requires sort of knowing 
where the front of the fire is and where it's going um, and knowing what the weather is doing, um, how the winds are blowing and all that. So that requires weather models, it requires satellite data, requires weather data, um, requires imagery from satellites or helicopters, airplanes, drones, what have you. Yeah, lots of different fields mm -hmm. working together to solve a common issue. Um, and like like you said, there needs to be like specific points maybe where the fire um, can be like slowed down a bit. Um, but of course you can't like just dump water on the whole thing like it's a house. So that makes sense. Yeah. So, so like kind of uh, moving a little bit towards like the eco hydrology part. So like uh, of the wildfires, um, there's a... So, so after a wildfire happens, how is like the plant, the plant's uh, physiology affected um, in terms of how it can interact with water? Um, like either when there's like lots of fires or when there's been so much fire suppression, like during those two. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so I mean, individual plants after a fire. So like I said, some plants need the fire for their seeds to grow, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, of course, you know, some plants might be so damaged by the fire that it either kills them right away or some plants will die, you know, in the years following a fire because their bark has been so damaged that they can't survive anymore. Um, but then the plants that remain after the fire and aren't damaged too much, um, they'll often do better because now, you know, other plants around them have been removed. They don't have to compete with as many other plants for the water that's available. Um, in certain areas, thinning out those forests mean that you retain more snowpack, which means more water that's stored on the ground until the spring and summer when the plants can actually use it. Um, in some places, fire can lead to less snowpack, but like I said, it's really complicated and site-specific. Mm -hmm. um, and in these fire adapted ecosystems, a lot of the plants are either adapted to be able to resist the fire really well or to be able to grow back after the fire. So like, there are certain trees that maybe have really thick bark. They also, or they can do this thing called self pruning where basically their lowest branches will die and fall off mm -hmm. so that the fires can't spread up into the canopy of the tree as easily. Um, and then some other plants basically say like, okay, I can't survive a fire, so I'm not even gonna try. This is especially true with a lot of shrubs um, and sometimes of oak where like fire comes through, they're probably just gonna burn, but then they'll re-sprout from their roots really easily the following year. Gotcha. Um, and so the, as long as the root ball survives, then um, the plant can just come back. Right. And um, as long as the soil is not so eroded or so hydrophobic that there's not water available for those plants, then they might also sort of be happier because they have more sun, they have less competition for water, mm -hmm. um, so they might even grow back better following the fire. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Oh, and there are some plants that can sort of colonize in recently burned areas um, like lupins, which are one of my favorite flower, um, really beautiful purple, sometimes yellow flower. Um, they don't need very much nitrogen in the soil. And sometimes in post-fire areas, a lot of the nitrogen has burned away. 
And so um, often you'll see these big, beautiful fields of lupin in the year or two after a fire because other plants might be having trouble growing mm -hmm. um, because uh, the of the ways the soil has been affected by the fire, but the lupin are really happy because they like all that sun. Um, they like that they don't have the competition and it doesn't bother them that there's not as much nitrogen available. Um, and then the lupin will actually put nitrogen into the soil that they pull out of the air. And so that can then help make the soil better for other plants to grow in the future. Yeah, that's, that's super cool. Cause then you have like uh, a whole collage of plants, natural selection and like a, mm -hmm. a nice, like a nice, um, so nicely selected gene pool. And I think that's, I think, and, and like plants working together basically um, without actually knowing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like um, do, making making life better for the rest of them. Um, so like a question I always ask is like, where and when did you get interested in environmental science? Um, because it's like from our conversation, you're so, you're so knowledgeable about this thing. <laughs> And like, I just want to know where, where, where did it all start? Yeah, um, well, basically started just from a love of the outdoors from when I was small, my family would go hiking and camping um, in all sorts of places. Um, and I always loved being outdoors. I grew up in the countryside. So it was always very comfortable and happy being around lots of trees and open spaces. Um, and always just been a very curious person. So wanted to know how the world around me worked. And um, yeah, and then in school, I really liked um, things that I learned in biology class, but I also actually really liked math class, which I know is not a popular thing usually, um, but I liked being able to sort of solve problems using numbers and these logical steps. Mm -hmm. And um, so that sort of drew me to environmental engineering, which is what my degree is, uh, what my graduate degree is in, where you can basically study the natural world using all these mathematical tools and computer models. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of combined my love of nature with my interest in math and hard science and um, sort of using logic to figure out the ways complex things work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love math too. So I think that, mm -hmm. um, I think that that's why I love like environmental engineering, environmental science. I think um, it's nice to, to have mm -hmm. a connection between the science and the mathematical physics aspect of it too. Yeah. So um, just to close off our very informative and uh, conversation today, um, are there any other like interesting experiences you might have um, that might have really impacted you um, like throughout your career or your life or anything you want to share? Oh, gosh, that's a big <laughs> question. Um, yeah, just there have been a lot of great experiences that I've had that have led to where I am now. Um, when I was in high school, there was um, sort of a school trip to Yosemite that was my first time visiting the park. And that was really influential. Um, that was the first time I learned about, you know, fire suppression and how it could impact future fires and impact the environment. Um, so thank you, Mr. Barnes Winters High School for organizing those trips. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, there are lots of other teachers and family members who really sort of fostered my curiosity and opened me up to all these different experiences um, that led to me being able to make a career out of hiking in the forest <laughs> and spending a lot of hours in front of a computer screen. Of course, it, that, that's mm -hmm. inevitable. Um, but yeah, mentors and family are super important and it's mm -hmm. important we acknowledge them um, for all their help. And if anyone would like to reach out to you, where can they do so? Um, yes, you can email me. Um, I don't know if you can put like in the notes or something, my, yeah. Um, do you have my DRI email? That's probably the best one. I think I do, but uh, yep, I do. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm on Twitter now. I resisted Twitter for a long time, but um, I've discovered that science Twitter is kind of a cool place to be. I basically only follow um, scientists and science-related things. <laughs> uh, I don't want to be bombarded with politics and other things that are on Twitter, um, but I'm on there um, at EcoPyroHydro. It's my handle. I don't post a lot. Um, uh, but hopefully the things that I post are interesting to people who like eco-hydrology and fire science. Yeah, I'll um, put all these, yeah, I'll this... put all these things in the podcast mm -hmm. episode description. All right. And well, we've been, uh, just to remind our listeners, uh, we've been speaking to Dr. Gab uh, Gabrielle um, Boyron. Boyron. Boarme, I'm sorry. And, and I just wanted to thank you so much for joining me here and talking about fire science, um, fire suppression and what can that and how that can affect like plants and, and eco hydrology um, and really opening my mind to different fields in science. Um, and I think that's super interesting and definitely really interesting for our listeners. And I really appreciated your time. Well, thank you. I had a great time. I look forward to seeing how the podcast comes out and um, Thank you for doing this and letting people hear more about what all these different women scientists are doing to study the environment. Of course. And thank you to the listeners for listening.